Welcome to the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. This podcast will be a sharing of part of my morning routine as I prepare for the day with the Word of God. We will be partaking of Puritan prayers from the Valley of Vision, each day's morning devotional from Charles Haddon Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, and we'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is the newest and, I believe, the most accurate translation of the Word of God. We will be following a Bible reading calendar that provides for reading the whole Bible in a year that was created by Minister Robert Murray McShane for his congregation back in 1842, and that has been a part of my daily reading for over six years now. Good morning and welcome to the morning segment of the Friday, August 18th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I am Wayne Floyd, your host. The Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble member of the Christian podcast community. Uh, you can find us over at christianpodcastcommunity.org. Um, a lot of great listen over there. We got over 60 well-curated podcasts. Actually got a couple more this week. Got to listen to. We've all got to listen to and check into. Um, but really wide variety of topics. It's very, 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 um, very, very thorough. There, there's a great amount of listening out there. I will guarantee you, you'll find something out there you want to listen to. And there's a real, real good probability that you're going to get out there and you're going to find more things to listen to than you have time to listen. So again, I would definitely encourage you to get on out there. I want to continue to point you at the final link in our show notes. It is for the Vale Valley Baptist Church Gives Sin Go campaign. We are striving to rapidly pay off our mortgage so that we can commence establishment of a uh, Christian classic education-based school to provide a trustworthy alternative here within our community. So go ahead and click on the link. Pastor Jay has provided a very, very thorough description of what we're trying to do. And then we would ask three things of you. We'd ask you to pray for us. We'd ask you to prayerfully consider giving to us. And we'd ask you to pass that link along so others can do the same. All right. Well, we're going to do our Bible reading for this morning segment, and we're going to wrap up our study in John 11. Um, and God willing, we'll be moving into John 12 next week. But we're going to do this last little portion in our Bible study for the evening segment. So let's go ahead and let's jump right in. Uh, we're going to open up with the sixth day morning prayer. It's called the gospel. Let's pray. O thou most high, creator of the ends of the earth, governor of the universe, judge of all men, head of the church, savior of sinners, thy greatness is unsearchable, thy goodness infinite, thy compassions unfailing, thy providence boundless, thy mercies ever new. We bless thee for the words of salvation. How important, suitable, encouraging are the doctrines, promises, and invitations of the gospel of peace. Peace, excuse me, we are lost, but in it thou hast presented to us a full, free, and eternal salvation. Weak, but there, here we learn that help is found in one that is mighty. Poor, but in him we discover unsearchable riches. Blind, but we find he has treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We thank thee for thy unspeakable gift. Thy Son is our only refuge, foundation, hope, confidence. We depend upon his death, rest in his righteousness, desire to bear his image. May his glory fill our minds, his love reign in our affections, his cross inflame us with ardor. Let us as Christians fill our various situations in life, escape the snares to which they expose us, discharge the duties that arise from our circumstances, enjoy with moderation their advantages, improve with diligence their usefulness, and may every place and company we are in be benefited by us. Amen. All right, our morning devotion this morning, the text for it is from Jeremiah 5151. Strangers are come into the sanctuaries of the Lord's house. In this account, the faces of the Lord's people were covered with shame, for it was a terrible thing that men should intrude into the holy place reserved for the priests alone. Everywhere about us we see like cause for sorrow. 
how many ungodly men are now educating with the view of entering into the ministry. What a crying sin is that solemn lie by which our whole population is nominally comprehended in a national church. How fearful it is that ordinances should be pressed upon the unconverted, and that among the more enlightened churches of our land there should be such laxity of discipline. If the thousands who will read this portion shall all take this matter before the Lord Jesus this day, he will interfere and avert the evil which else will come upon his church. To adulterate the church is to pollute a well, to pour water upon fire, to sow a fertile field with stones. May we all have grace to maintain in our own proper way the purity of the church, as being an assembly of believers, and not a nation, an unsafe community of unconverted men. Our zeal must, however, begin at home. Let us examine ourselves as to our right to eat at the Lord's table. Let us see to it that we have on our wedding garment, lest we ourselves be intruders in the Lord's sanctuaries. Many are called, but few are chosen. The way is narrow, and the gate is straight. O oh, for grace to come to Jesus aright with the faith of God's elect. He who smote Uzzah for touching the ark is very jealous of his two ordinances. As a true believer, I'm sorry, as a true believer, I may approach them freely. As an alien, I must not touch them, lest I die. Heart searching is the duty of all who are baptized or come to the Lord's table. Search me, O God, and know my way. Try me and know my heart. All right. Um, I want to real quickly explain that. So for, for those of us living in the United States, um, unless you know something about Spurgeon and his time frame and everything, you wouldn't really understand that. Um, at least to a certain extent. When he's talking about a national church, he's, he's talking about the Anglican church. It is, it is the national church of the United Kingdom. And that is where he was preaching. He was in the Metropolitan Cathedral there in London. The problem is that there at the time, and, and in some cases they still do, though not as much, um, if, if, if to, to function in society, you had to be a part of the church. It didn't have anything to do with being a true believer, being truly saved. It was about being, being a part of the church. So, so it was more of a social thing than, than necessarily a faith-based thing, whereas our church... Uh, we typically, typically we sit down, I mean, with our pastor, as small as our church is, you got to sit down with your pastor and he's going to, he's going to want, want to hear your conversion story. He's going to want to hear about your beliefs and all that's going to have to take place before you become a member. Okay. And he's going to evaluate that and, and try to be very, try to be very sure of himself before he makes you a member of our church. He allows you to become a member of our church and well, allows you to be voted in by the rest of the members of our church. So, you know, it's more about the purity and, and what this is, what he was talking about, what Spurgeon was talking about here is the corruption that had come in, what had happened because, um, the, the fact is forcing, forcing, um, membership in a church on a population ends up with very, very many who are not true believers. That's not what we're called to biblically. And that's what Spurgeon is calling out there, there that it is not biblical for us to force that. That's why I kind of struggle with, I'm not going to get into detail here, but why I struggle with some of the folks and some of the ways they behave in a, in a, in a um, Christian nationalist outlook. Not all of them are that way that, that claim Christian nationalism, but there are ones that want to turn around and basically, basically try to force a religion on the, st on the state. Um, and, and the fact is that's not what we're called to. We're, we're, we're called to bring the gospel and God will save those who 
are at that time, um, who, who are called and who are, um, who are the ones from before the foundation of the earth that God earmarked for saving faith. So that is what Spurgeon is dealing with there. And again, I'm not trying to voice, I'm not trying to push forward opinion or have a deep discussion at this point about Christian nationalism. I'm thinking about doing a, uh, the wife and I doing um, a special episode about that because what I really want to do, actually I want to go and do all the research. I want to really dig in because I don't want to mischaracterize the way people think from either side of the argument. I want to truly understand either side and truly understand where I sit in that before we discuss it. Um, but maybe that will come up and believe me, there have been a bunch of great podcasts about it um, that I've listened to and have very much enjoyed. And I'll probably include those in the show notes for that. But um, again, I, 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 I'm kind of feeling a need to speak on it as well. Um, not that anybody really cares what my opinion is and, and I don't blame you. I wouldn't either. But, um, but any, again, that, that's kind of where Spurgeon's coming from is the government was trying to force um, Anglicanism upon the people that, that, that is our state church. You must be a member of the state church, etc., etc. Et, except, you know, and so you've got people who are not true believers. Now, of course you had Queen Elizabeth who's passed away, who manifested every bit of, of the, the characteristics of somebody who truly believed who was truly saved. I hope she was, you know, I, I don't know one way or another and it's not my place, but I hope she was, but there are many that are members of the Anglican church that are clearly not true believers. All right. Sorry. I just, I, I thought we, I wanted to clarify that because, you know, he starts talking about national church and we don't have that here in the United States. So it's something that can be confusing to us unless you understand where Spurgeon's coming from. All right, let's jump into our reading. Uh, our reading for today, we're going to be in Esther. So we've, we've cleared out of, um, shoot, I think it was Nehemiah was the last one we finished. Uh, yesterday. So we're in Esther 1, 2, and 3, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. I think that finishes that chapter. Uh, Psalm 35, 17 through 28, that does finish that psalm. And then Proverbs 21, verses 19 and 20. So Esther 1, 2, and 3. Esther 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now it happened in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa, in the third year of his reign, he held a feast for all his princes and servants, the military officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence, while he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. And when these days were fulfilled, the king held a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of fine linen and blue linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble pillars and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. And drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's hand, and the drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had established it for each official of the, his household that he should do according to what pleased each person. Queen Vashti also held a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he said for Mehuman, I'm, he said for Mehuman Bistha, Arbona, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zethar, 
and Carcas, the seven eunuchs who attended to the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful in appearance. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the word of the king, which was delivered by the hand of the eunuchs. Then the king became exceedingly furious, and his wrath burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for it was the custom of the king thus to speak before all who knew law and justice, and, and were close to him, Karshima, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mere, Merez, Marcina, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. According to law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti, because she did not do the declaration of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the hand of the eunuchs? Then in the presence of the king and the princes, Mimukan said, Queen Vashti has committed iniquity against not only the king, but also against all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the word about the queen will get out to all the women, causing them to despise their husbands in their eyes, by saying, King Ahasuerus said for Queen Vashti to be brought in to his presence, but she did not come. This day the ladies of Persia and Media, who have heard of the word about the queen, will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of spite and indignation. If it seems good to the king, let a royal word go forth from him, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Hasiris, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. And the king's sentence which he will make will be heard throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, and all women will give respect to their husbands, great and small. And this word was good in the eyes of the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memucan. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to every people according to their tongue, that every man should be the ruler in his own house, and the one who speaks in the tongue of his own people. Esther 2 After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti, and what she had done, and what had been decided against her. Then the young men of the king, who attended to him, said, Let young virgins beautiful in appearance be sought for the king. And let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather every young virgin, beautiful in appearance, to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the hand of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who keeps charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them. Then let the young lady who is good in the eyes of the king be queen in place of Vashti. And the word was good in the eyes of the king, and he did so. Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew, and his name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shemi, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken away into exile from Jerusalem with the exiles who had been taken away into exile, with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had taken away into exile. And he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful in form and beautiful in appearance, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now it happened that when the word and law of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa, into the hand of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's house into the hand of Haggai, who kept charge of the women. And the young lady was good in his eyes, and she advanced in loving kindness before him. So he hurried to give her cosmetics and portions of food to her, and to give to her seven choice young women from the king's house. And he transferred her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther did not tell anyone about her people or her kinsmen, for Mordecai had commanded her that she should not tell anyone about them. 
and every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to know the well-being of Esther and how she fared. Now when it reached the turn of each young lady to, to go into Ahas, to King Ahasuerus after the end of her twelve months under the regulations for the women, for the days of their cosmetic treatment were fulfilled as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and, and the cosmetics for women. Then the young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she said she desired was given to her to come with her from the harem to the king's house. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem, to the hand of Shagat, Shah, Shagaz, the king's eunuch, who kept charge of the concubines. She would not again go into the king unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. Now when it reached the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, to go into the king, she did not seek anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who kept charge of the women, said, and Esther advanced in favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, to his royal house in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she advanced in favor and loving kindness before him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. Then the king held a great feast, Esther's feast, for all his princes and his servants. He also held a remission of taxes for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's hand. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet told anyone about her kinsmen or her people, just as Mordecai had commanded her. Indeed, Esther was doing what Mordecai declared that she do, just as she had done when she was being brought up by him. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs from those who were, who were doorkeepers, became furious and sought to send forth their hand against King Ahasuerus. But the matter became known to Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther said it to the king in Mordecai's name. Then the matter was sought out and found to be true, so they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. Esther 3 after these things, King Ahasuerus magnified Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate were bowing down and prostrating themselves before Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow down or prostrate himself. So the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you trespass against the king's command? Now it happened when they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Then Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or prostrating himself before him, so Haman was filled with wrath. But he despised in his eyes to send forth his hand against Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day, and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and separated among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not do the king's law, so it is not worth it for the king to let them remain. If it seems good to the king, let it be written down that they should perish, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who do this work, to bring into the king's treasuries. 
Then the king removed his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the adversary of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The silver is yours, and the people also to do with them according to what is good in your eyes. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman summoned I'm sorry, as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its tongue, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. And letters were sent by the hand of couriers to all the king's provinces, to destroy, to kill, and to cause all the Jews to perish, both young and old, little ones and women, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to plunder their spoil. A copy of that which was written down to be given as law in every province was revealed to all the peoples, so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out, hastened by the word of the king, and the law was given at the citadel in Susa. Now the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was in confusion. All right. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 34 But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together in the same place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. For do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was being betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must test himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will direct when I come. Uh, Psalm 35, verse 17 through 28. Lord, how long will you look on? Bring back my soul from their ravages, my only life from the lions. I will give you thanks in the great assembly. I will praise you among a mighty people. Let those who are wrongfully my enemies not be glad over me, nor let those who hate me without cause wink maliciously, for they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful words against those who are quiet in the land. They open their mouth wide against me. They said, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen it, O Yahweh, do not keep silent. O Lord, do not be far from me. Stir up yourself and awake to my justice and to my cause, my God and my Lord. Judge me, O Yahweh, my God, according to your righteousness. And do not let them be glad over me. Do not let them say in their heart, Aha, our desire. 
Do not let them say, We have swallowed him up. Let those be ashamed and humiliated altogether who are glad at the evil done to me. Let those be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves over me. Let them shout for joy and be glad who delight in my righteousness, and let them say continually, Yahweh be magnified, who delights in the peace of his slave, and my tongue shall utter your righteousness and your praise all day long. All right. And finally, Proverbs 21, verses 18 and 19. I'm sorry, verses 19 and 20, excuse me. It is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. There is a desirable treasure and oil in the abode of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. All right, well, that is our reading for the day. I thank you for spending this time with me. Um, I would continue to implore you to do all that you do for the glory of God. And I hope to see you for the evening segment. Let's go ahead and close out with prayer. The prayer we're going to use from Valley Vision is called Paradoxes. So let's pray. O changeless God, under the conviction of thy spirit, I learn that the more I do, the worse I am. The more I know, the less I know. The more holiness I have, the more sinful I am. The more I love, the more there is to love. O wretched man that I am, O Lord, I have a wild heart and cannot stand before thee. I am like a bird before a man. How little I love thy truth and ways. I neglect prayer by thinking I have prayed enough, and earnestly by knowing thou hast saved my soul. Of all hypocrites, grant that I may not be an evangelical hypocrite, who sins more safely because grace abounds, who tells his lusts that his lust that Christ's blood cleanseth them, who reasons that God cannot cast him into hell, for he is saved, who loves evangelical preaching, churches, Christians, but lives unholily. My mind is a bucket without a bottom, with no spiritual understanding, no desire for the Lord's day, ever learning but never reaching the truth, always at the gospel well but never holding water. My conscience is without conviction or contrition, with nothing to repent of. My will is without power of decision or resolution. My heart is without affection and full of leaks. My memory has no retention, so I forget easily the lessons learned and thy truth seep away. Give me a broken heart that yet carries home the water of grace. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have yourself a wonderful day, and I hope to see you for the evening segment. Have a good one. God bless. Welcome to the evening segment of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. Good evening and welcome to the evening segment of the Friday, August 18th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I continue to be Wayne Floyd, your host. Uh, we're going to be continuing on in our study of John chapter 11. Actually, we're going to be finishing it up here in this evening segment. And so next week, God willing, we'll be going on into John chapter 12. And like I said, we'll be going into a new volume of MacArthur's commentaries. Um, he breaks it after John 11 and the second book is John 12 through 21. So, but let's go ahead and open up with prayer. We're going to open up with a prayer from Valley Vision called Freedom. Let's pray. O Holy Father, thou hast freely given thy son. O Divine Son, thou hast freely paid my debt. O Eternal Spirit, thou hast freely bid me come. O Triune God, thou dost freely grace me with salvation. Prayers and tears could not suffice to pardon my sins, nor anything less than atoning blood, but my believing is my receiving, for a thankful acceptance is no paying of the debt. What didst, what didst thou see in me? 
that I, a poor disease, despised sinner, should be clothed in thy bright glory, that a creeping worm should be advanced to this high state, that one lately groaning, weeping, dying, should be as full of joy as my heart can hold, that a being of dust and darkness should be taken like Mordecai from captivity and set next to the king, should be lifted like Daniel from a den and be made ruler of princes and provinces, who can fathom immeasurable love, as far as the rational soul exceeds the senses, so does the spirit exceed the rational in its knowledge of thee. Thou hast given me understanding to compass the earth, measure the sun, moon, stars, universe, but above all to know thee, the only true God. I marvel that the finite can know the infinite, here a little afterwards in full orb truth. Now I know but a small portion of what I shall know, here in part, there in perfection, here a glimpse, there a glory, to enjoy thee in life eternal, and to enjoy is to know. Keep me in the freedom of experiencing thy salvation continually. Amen. All right, our evening devotion. Uh, the text for it is from Mark fifteen twenty three, And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. A golden truth is couched in the fact that the Savior put the myrrhed wine cup from his lips. On the heights of heaven the Son of God stood of old, and as he looked down upon our globe he measured the long descent to the utmost depths of human misery. He cast up the sum total of all the agonies which expiation would require, and abated not a jot. He solemnly determined that to offer a sufficient atoning sacrifice he must go the whole way, from the highest to the lowest, from the throne of highest glory to the cross of deepest woe. This murd cup, with its soporific influence, would have stayed him within a little of the utmost limit of misery. Therefore he refused it. He would not stop short of all he had undertaken to suffer for his people. Ah, how many of us have pined after reliefs to our grief which would have been injurious to us. Reader, did you never pay for a discharge from hard service or suffering with a petulant and willful eagerness? Providence has taken from you the desire of your eyes with a stroke. Say, Christian, if it had been said, if you so desire it, that that loved one of yours shall live, but God will be dishonored. Could you have put away the temptation and said, Thy will be done? Or it is, oh, it is sweet to be able to say, My Lord, if for other reasons I need not suffer, yet if I can honor thee more by suffering, and if the loss of my earthly all will bring thee glory, then so let it be. I refuse the comfort if it comes in the way of thine honor. Oh, that we thus walked, more in the footsteps of our Lord, cheerfully enduring trial for his sake, promptly and willingly putting away the thought of self and comfort when it would interfere with our finishing the work which he has given us to do. Great grace is needed, but great grace is provided. Yeah. Wow. That one kind of punches you in the gut, doesn't it? All right. Well, like I said, we're going to be wrapping up our study in John chapter 11, this, this study of what is taking place around the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And again, we're in that last four months. Okay. That, uh, John 10, the very end of John 10 is around the feast of dedication, which is four months before this final Passover, um, that we see in the gospel of John in this Passover where, um, Jesus is crucified and rises again. So we're, we're, we're in that four months in between and somewhere in there, we don't know exactly when Lazarus gets sick and then dies and Jesus goes and resurrects him. So we're somewhere in that period. And so he has come there. And so we've seen, so, so again, this whole section, and, and like I've told you before, I use MacArthur's kind of breakout, the, you know, his, his overall titles and his subtitles and stuff like that, because it just makes things easier for, is easier for me. But basically what we've, we've ended up with is in, um, 
John chapter 11, we've got four sections. We have the precursor, the, the lead up time till Jesus actually arriving in Bethany, the Bethany around it, around Jerusalem. It's about less than two miles from Jerusalem. Then his arrival there and the conversations he has, then the resurrection itself. And then here at the end, the reactions to the resurrection of Lazarus, the response, the aftermath of him actually resurrecting Lazarus. And so we've been, that's what we've been dealing with the last three days or the last two days. And then here's our third day, um, among those three people and that we said there were three people groups, but there's only, there's only two responses. Okay. Cause basically what we're looking at in reactions here is there's two responses to Jesus, particularly two responses in this place, but there's two responses to Jesus. Either you believe in him and you accept him as Lord and savior, or you don't. There's no in between. There's no, he was a good teacher. There's no, um, well, I kind of like what he has to say, but I don't buy all of it. There's no any of that. Either you accept him as Lord and savior and you trust in him as your savior, or you don't. If you do, you have eternal life. If you don't, you you're facing eternal damnation. And believe me, it's not going to be some party down there in hell. It is going to be an eternity of facing God's wrath. And his wrath is massive. Okay. So what we're looking at is these different people groups that we see broken down across this verse 45 through verse 57 here. This is that last section, the reactions. And we saw in verse 45, the many, therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary, I'm reading it now, and saw what he had done, believed in him. We saw a true saving faith. They truly believed that he was the Christ, the son of God, he, that he was the Messiah. They, they couldn't, even if some of them had resisted to this point, they could no longer put it off. This man just raised someone from the dead. He has given a man who was born blind the ability to see. He has generated new visual capability in this man. Right in front of us. And now here, because again, a lot of these people are the same people. Again, like we said, the Jews, Jewish leadership, they were there and they were confronted with man born blind, actually being seeing. And that was all confirmed to them that Jesus did that. And then now they, they came to mourn with Mary and Martha uh, over Lazarus because they were, they were a prominent family, relatively prominent family. And these Jews came over from Jerusalem to Bethany to mourn with them. And now they're confronted with the fact that with all the steps Jesus took coming to here, the waiting, the couple of days, the, the, the not getting here, but already knowing not getting there until Lazarus was four days in the ground, but already knowing that he was dead, though he hadn't been told knowing that Lazarus was dead and actually being happy about that. Not that Lazarus was dead, not being happy that the sisters were going through what they were going through, but that God would be glorified, that Jesus Christ himself would be glorified and that the faith of the 12 would be strengthened, especially, and you got to think about it, Jesus doesn't say this, but I, 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 I can't help but think about, it. think of what these guys are going to have to go through. And the fact is all but John get martyred for their faith. So what great faith must they have had to stand and not fall, to not give in and to stand on their faith in Christ? What a strengthening this must have been for them. Okay. So they've, they've, they've been strengthened. So they've seen this happen. They've seen him 
raised this man from the dead. He must be from God. I mean, we'd even seen, like we talked about, we'd even seen the man born blind make the, make the clear logical argument. Jesus made me see only a man of God could make me make a person see. Therefore, Jesus must be from God. You know, this man must be from God, um, which they wouldn't even accept that. Well, you know, you could make the same argument here. Jesus raised this man from the dead. And again, we saw that he didn't even touch. He had them. He had the people, which would include some of those Jews, the Jewish leadership. Remember John, the apostle, when he says Jews, in a lot of cases, he's talking about the Jewish leadership. In this case, I think he's talking about a combination. But again, they were the ones who rolled the stone away, did not smell the decay. And then when Lazarus walked out, they saw him walked out and were standing there and they were the ones who unwrapped him. They are the ones who un, 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 dis, um, removed the bandages from him. There was no way there was a sleight of hand. They were part, they were, they were true witnesses to this miracle. So many believed that was the many, but then we saw the murderers. We saw their reaction that by default, you know, of course they're like, what are we going to do? You know, this, this guy, everybody's going to believe. So they're acknowledging the fact that he's doing these signs and he's doing signs strong enough to bring people to belief. He is proving clearly, they're, they're showing clearly that they know he is giving every bit of proof necessary to show that he is the Christ, the son of God. And they are choosing, they, they are making the choice not to believe. Okay. It's like, like we've said before, cast in pearl before swines. They, they're not interested. They're, they, they are not going to be. They don't want to lose their place. And again, that's part of it. They don't want to see the Romans come in and take away take away their, their goodies, take away their position, take away their, their, their leadership in their community, take away any of that. And that's what the Romans will do if, if you end up with a revolt going on. Now, Jesus isn't talking about a revolt, never has, but that's their fear. Because we talked about the nationalism involved in the Passover. And of course, we see Caiaphas. You know, and, and like I said, you know, Josephus talks about the Sadducees being rude, which Caiaphas is one, but he at least basically says, you guys are ridiculous and have no clue here. He says, you, you know, nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he's making clear innocent or not, this man needs to die for the nation. He's making that very clear. He's already determined this man needs to die. And him being high priest, he has a lot of pull. Okay, this is not just one of 74. This guy has huge pull. He's the high priest. Now, so does Annas, his father-in-law. But Annas, Annas and Caiaphas have a tendency to walk in lockstep. So that's a lot of weight right there behind the idea of killing this man, this innocent man, to save the nation. And I'm putting that in scare quotes because it, it was really about protecting themselves. Um, and of course, we, we saw that he, Caiaphas, out of his own knowledge, without his own knowledge, is prophesying there that Jesus is going to die for the nation. He is going to die for the salvation of the Jews, not all of them, those who are elect, but for the Gentiles as well. And we saw that. So at that point, Jesus won't continue walking there openly among the Jews. So he went away into a city called Ephraim. He's out near the wilderness. He's probably 12 to 15 miles away. Um, and I think it was a place called Ephron. 
but I, I don't, I, I forgot. I meant to look it back up to make sure I was actually saying that right yesterday. But anyways, he, he's staying there, um, with his disciples. So we get into our verses today. We're talking about the multitudes. So I'm going to go ahead and read you verses 55 through 57. So this, this is our last group we're going to deal with here. Now the Passover of the Jews was near and many went up to Jerusalem from the region before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Okay. So again, this is the third Passover. This is the third Passover recorded in John. Um, there was the first one and this is, um, I think it's back in John six where we're dealing with the first Passover during Jesus's ministry. Uh, the second one, he's actually off in Galilee and I forget what chapter that's in, but this is the last one. The one coming up is the last one we're going to see here. And of course, this is the one where he's going to be crucified, but for them to come and make the sacrifice. So there, there were, there were ritual sacrifices that were part of the Mosaic law, not the rabbinic law, the Mosaic law that they had to make by family for the Passover and things they had to do and, and, and a ritual purity that they had to achieve, you know, for, from anything that might've contaminated them. I mean, even being near, um, think about it in this case, they've been, they've been near dead bodies in, in the cemetery there. Um, so, you know, they, they've got to clean themselves. They've got to purify themselves and, and they're doing the right thing. But you would actually see, um, starting weeks beforehand, people would head into head into Jerusalem. And remember they got to walk too. So they're having to walk the distances, but they're going into Jerusalem early to get themselves completely purified so that they can properly participate in the Passover. Cause if they aren't purified, they don't get to participate in the Passover, which is a big no, no. And they won't get to do it till the next year. Huge, huge no-no. And there was actually some, some of the, something I read in one of the commentaries talked about the fact that you would get, in some cases, it was documented that you would get in some cases over a million people in Jerusalem. Now, I live in Tucson, well, I live outside of Tucson, Arizona. Within this valley, which having been to Jerusalem, this valley it, uh, we've got basically kind of mountains on three sides of this valley, but they are huge. And this valley is huge. We've got over a million people here. I cannot, having been to Jerusalem, I cannot even imagine. And, and, and admittedly, you know, the Jerusalem back in first century was probably smaller than the one I was at, because like I told you, the one I was at, the way it had built out Bethlehem and Bethany kind of blended into Jerusalem and then you had trouble separating them but I can't even imagine a million people being piled in there. I mean, it, 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 oh, the human press must've been huge, but again, the, the press of bodies, the, the being jammed together like that must've been, must've been horrendous. But so the Jews are going there. They're going to the, to purify themselves. But while they're going there, um, so we see verse 56. So they were seeking Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all. So this, this is kind of the average people. It's probably some of the leadership as well that are looking for them, but it's kind of the other people as well. They're looking for Jesus. They're looking to see if Jesus is going to show up, you know, and they've done that before. We've seen that at a previous, uh, at a previous feast, 
you know, is he going to show up? Is he going to come? And, and in that case, I think if I remember right, he, he didn't go with his brothers. He ended up going separately and was like halfway through before he showed up on purpose. Um, if I remember right. And so, you know, surprised them. So again, they're looking, um, but they've also heard, and again, we've got the chief priests here. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. So the Pharisees have put out the orders that basically when they say now the chief priests and the Pharisees, basically the Sanhedrin has put out the order that if you see him, you come report that and we're going to send our officers to take him into custody. Now, again, there is no indication of any charges whatsoever of any, I mean, nobody's got anything. I mean, guys like Barabbas, we're going to see, you know, we, we're going to see in the final bit of Passion Week where um, Pilate goes to offer, you know, hey, it's Passover week. I usually let somebody go. Do you want me to let go of the king of the Jews? And they want him to release Barabbas, who was a murderer. Well, when Barabbas was captured, it was published out what his charges were. There are no charges against Jesus at this point. None, none whatsoever. There, there's, there's absolutely no indication. Now I, I have to, I have to clarify with you. Um, and one of the, and one of the commentaries I was reading, they indicated that while the people now knew that the fair, that the Sanhedrin was looking for Jesus, they might not have known their murderous intent. That's possible, except there's been more than once just in the gospel of John alone indication of the Sanhedrin trying to grab him to stone him. That has a very distinct look to it. I have trouble believing that word did not get around Israel first century Israel indicating that at least at some point, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, this religious leadership had shown a, a desire to kill him had shown a desire to be violent with him. So I have trouble believing that, that, that these people didn't know knew. now the order, the official order was out that they wanted him seized. Um, so they wanted you to give the information on him, but I have trouble believing that at least some of those people didn't already understand that they were going to seize him because they had every intention of killing this man. I have a lot of trouble believing that now, again, it doesn't state it spe specifically in the scripture. So again, this is, this is, um, this is Wayne's read on what the text has said from, you know, John four, John five, all the way through till now, I have trouble believing that there's not at least some of the average populace that don't know that this religious leadership want him dead. Not saying all of them do, but I have trouble believing that there weren't some out there. Now, again, like we've, like we've seen there, there's, there's been no publication in the open to state clearly, um, that to give any kind of clear statement that, Hey, we want to kill this guy. So, so again, they're not stating it outright. Okay. So maybe there are some that are oblivious enough that don't know. Okay. And that's fine. That's fine. I'm not, I'm not saying that's not possible. What I'm saying is I don't know that I buy the idea that, that, that the majority of the average Jew doesn't know that these guys want to kill him. 
But again, we've got the multitudes here. They're interested in him. So, you know, when they're saying, what do you think that he will not come to the feast at all? Their interest here is not in the fact that, hey, is that kind of guy going to come back? I really got to hear his teaching. It's not a, it's not a, the reaction of somebody who's been truly affected by his ministry. This is a blasé kind of casual, um, chatting around the water cooler kind of conversation. Hey, what do you think? You think he's going to come? You think he's going to show up to the feast? I mean, look, look at the way this is going on out here. They, they've been pretty harsh on me. You think he's really going to show up? They're chit-chatting around the water cooler. They don't have any real interest in him. They don't care. I mean, again, like I said, you can respond one of two ways. You can believe in him and accept him as Lord and Savior or not. And again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to do the whole free will um Arminian kind of that that's not I mean that's just the wording we tend to use because the English language is so bad at conveying um, these theological strengths but again these people are not believe these here the multitude they're unbelievers as well I mean they they are as unbelieving as the murderers okay no no they're not necessarily running around looking to kill him themselves yet except these are the same people that we're going to see go from Hosanna in the highest and within six days, less than six days, get him out of here, get him out of here, crucify him. We want Barabbas. Obviously, their answer is clear. They don't want Jesus. He is the sole way. He is our sole way to salvation. He is the sole answer here. He is their soul, their soul savior, their soul Messiah. And he is ours as well. But clearly, and, and we saw clearly in verse 45, they believed in him. But the murderers and the multitude, nope. Nope. They've written him off. I mean, yeah, he's this cool guy. He might be a prophet, you know. Um, he's doing some pretty neat things. He's, he's got saying some, he's teaching some interesting things. Um, some are a little tough to take and, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing the Sanhedrin get a bit, bit out of shape here, but there's no saving faith, none, none. And that's what we got to realize. That's got to be our response. And, and again, I've said over and over and, I, and I'm going to go back to it and I know it's probably wearing you out, but the fact is. Jesus has said everything and done everything even before John chapter 11 in the gospel of John. But definitely, if you take into account John 11 itself, to make clear that he is the Christ, the son of God, that he is truly the Messiah. He is their savior. There's nothing left he needed to do. He didn't have to raise Lazarus. Now, a key part of it was strengthening the faith of, of the 12, but he made it clear. And those who God had ordained to believe are believing. And those he did not are not, they are hardening their hearts. The Sanhedrin here, they've hardened their hearts. They remind me of Pharaoh. They always make, when I, when I read about them, I think of Pharaoh. Um, they're hardening their hearts. Yeah, we're going to have a few. We're going to have Nicodemus. We're going to have Joseph of Arimathea. There might have been a few others. 
that will manifest some characteristics that will make us think, um, and, 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 you know, maybe have an opinion that maybe they came to a saving faith in Christ. And I'd like to believe that. But the rest of these, particularly Caiaphas, Annas, no. They show every characteristic of having hardened their hearts and being given, be, being given over for approbation. And that's what you're seeing here. That's what you're seeing here among the murderers and the multitude. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this evening. Um, I hope you've had a good week. I, I hope you go on to have a great weekend. Um, I would continue to implore you to do all that you do for the glory of God. I hope you have good plans for the weekend. Um, we're supposed to be doing a family thing Saturday night. We're not sure what all is going on there. Um, but but I, I would beg you that if part of your plans this weekend does not include worshiping with the saints, change them. Get to church. And worship with the saints. That's where you belong. That's where we are commanded to be. So do it and be obedient. All right. Well, again, I hope you have a great weekend. Let's go ahead and let's close it out with prayer. We're going to close out with the six day evening prayer called the mediator. Let's pray. O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we hope in thy word. There we see thee, not on a fearful throne of judgment, but on a throne of grace, waiting to be gracious and exalted in mercy. There we hear thee saying, Not depart ye cursed, but look unto me, and be ye saved. For I am God, and there is none else. They that know thy name put their trust in thee. How many now glorified in heaven, and what numbers living on earth are thy witnesses, O God, exemplifying in their recovery from the ruins of the fall, the freeness, riches, and efficacy of thy grace. All that were ever saved were saved by thee, and will through eternity exclaim, not unto us, but unto thy name, give glory for thy mercy and truth's sake. Thou hast chosen to transact all thy concerns with us through a mediator, in whom all fullness dwells, and who is exalted to be prince and savior. To him we look, on him we depend, through him we are justified. May we de derive relief from his sufferings, without ceasing to abhor sin, or to long after holiness. Feel the double efficacy of his blood, tranquilizing and cleansing our consciences, Delight in his service as well as in his sacrifice. Be constrained by his love to live not to ourselves, but to him. Cherish a grateful and cheerful disposition, not murmuring and repining if our wishes are not indulged, or because some trials are blended with our enjoyments, but sensible of our desert, and impressed with the number and greatness of thy benefits. May we bless and praise thee at all times. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have yourself a great weekend, and I hope to see you tomorrow morning. Have a good one. God bless. Mm -hmm.